Please stand as you're able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, David, for reading our lesson, and uh, Jim for leading us, Mason, and our praise team, and as always, our production staff who does such a wonderful job, not only of in-person, but also for those of you who are online, uh, it is always a joy to be in your home. And for the privilege of sharing God's Word with you today, uh, it is a great honor for us. So we welcome you wherever you are, and we're grateful for those of you who are in person this morning as well. Uh, it is hard to believe that uh, tomorrow, I believe, is the last day of the month of January. It went by pretty quick, and that we're about a month, uh, four weeks from this coming Wednesday, uh, we'll be beginning our Lenten journey with Ash Wednesday together on March the 2nd, and we look forward to that as well. Uh, and uh, what, a, what a month it's been. Uh, it, I, somebody the other day told me that he had moved his family to Nashville from Chicago to get away from the cold. And I said, welcome home. <laughs> uh, it's been an interesting month, but we're glad that you're here and it, there's a warmth in this place today. Well, two weeks ago, we started a series on 1 Timothy. I've never preached a series of sermons on 1 Timothy uh, called Love Uncontaminated. And, and we borrow that theme uh, from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this particular letter in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Uh, he speaks of love uncontaminated. Now, I want to remind you that this particular letter is a part of a genre of literature called the pastoral epistles, of which there are three in the New Testament. There's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And the pastoral epistles are a little bit different from other letters that Paul wrote in that he didn't write them to whole faith communities or cities, but he wrote them to pastors personal words to pastors who were leading faith communities that Paul had planted some years prior. And now they're in their second generation, and Paul is now through the Roman Postal Service, is corresponding with these colleagues, these young co-workers, uh, as they navigate the mission of the gospel in a shifting and challenging landscape and culture. I think it's extremely relevant to our culture today. The postmark on this letter is likely from Rome, where Paul may be facing his final days uh, under house arrest in the Empire City. And so he's writing from a context of incarceration, likely. And it's also clear that the letter was addressed 
to a particular place in Ephesus in care of or to the attention of Brother Timothy. The note encourages Timothy, as we've seen before, to stay put, to stay on task, to persevere in Ephesus. Why? For the sake of the message, for the sake of the teaching. What we know from the last couple of weeks is that there were some in Ephesus who were misleading the flock in regard to their teaching. That they were actually deviating from the apostolic doctrine. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.18 says they were swerving from the truth in their teaching. The word swerving in the Greek language implies an erratic diversion from the intended curriculum or the intended course. There are some who suggest that they were teaching a rugged form of asceticism, which is a severe kind of self-discipline or self-flagellization in such a way that avoids any, avoids any and all pleasure in order to become closer to God. It's called asceticism. There are others who say, no, it was Gnosticism, which if you know anything about that first century heresy, Gnosticism, the root word is gnosis, it means knowledge. There were those who were teaching that the revelation of God comes only through secret knowledge reserved for the spiritually elite. They're swerving from the truth. I was reading a book recently by Peter Greer and Chris Horst called Mission Drift. It's worth reading. They say in the book, and I quote, Without careful, prayerful attention, faith-based organizations will inevitably drift from their founding mission. The mission. Simon Sinek refers to this as what happens when we forget our why, our W-H-Y, when we forget our, our reason, our why for being. We started training a new group of lay leaders last week over lunch. Uh, after the 1045 service, we met in Haney Hall about 30 of our uh, lay leaders that we're training, and we started the whole session out with, with our why, the reason we exist as a church, the mission of the church. You know the mission of the church, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That's our why, and that's our only why. That's our reason for existing. We talked about the fact that the word disciple in the Greek mathetes literally means student or learner, or apprentice. And the fact is, in this church, we are all interns of Jesus. We're all seeking to walk in the way of Jesus. Well, after the session, one of our men who's being trained uh, shared with me his personal mission statement for 2022. He had actually written this out, and I have a slide of it. It says, this year, I want to be more like Jesus which means he gave five specifics. I want to hang out with sinners. I want to upset religious people. I want to tell stories that make people think. I want to choose unpopular friends. And I want to be kind, loving, and merciful. And I thought, that really is like Jesus. And that's his why. And that's what he's trying to live up to in 2022 in his personal mission statement. In the first chapter of Paul's letter to Timothy, Paul notes, enumerates two attributes that will surely deter mission drift. The first one is simply perseverance. It's, it's what we called a couple of weeks ago stick to It's just endurance. And the second one is sound 
teaching. In the second chapter that DJ read for us, he mentions a third thing that is pivotal to the mission. Jim mentioned it in his prayer. It's central to the life of the church. It's prayer. Stick-to-itiveness, sound teaching, and prayer. Next week, we're going to talk about expectations for leadership. But today, prayer to the text. First of all, then, says Paul, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Start with prayer. Notice that I've italicized that word everyone. That's an important word for Paul. Paul uses the word everyone or all in the first seven verses five times. What's he saying? He's saying, he's stressing the scope and breadth of our mission, the scope and breadth and depth of our concern. In essence, what Paul is saying is that prayer is a means of cultivating a congregation's peaceful relations with everyone. Not with a few, not with a remnant, not with my group, but everyone, especially those with whom we may be at odds with. And I want you to notice that the all includes, watch this, kings and those in high positions. In other words, pray for our governing leaders, the political leadership, the authorities that exist institutionally in our culture. You say, well, that sounds, that sounds reasonable, but if I'm Timothy, I'm not sure. <laughs> if I'm Timothy in Ephesus in the first century, struggling as a Christian, I'm not sure that that really sounds rational because at the time that this letter was written, the political authorities in Rome were not so friendly to the church. In fact, to the contrary, the Roman rulers in the first century were enemies of the way. Many of them tried to stamp out the movement. In fact, did you know that during Nero's time, who was Caesar from 54 to 68, both Peter and Paul were executed. They were martyred for their faith. Domitian and Trajan were no better. And yet, even in times of persecution, the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Christ, were instructed to pray for the political leaders. Verse 8 says, we didn't read that, but the next verse, after what David read for us, lift up holy hands without anger and without argument. Sounds like Jesus. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Really? <laughs> Do good to them that hate you and pray for them who persecute you. That's a part of Jesus' signature sermon. Peter writes in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 17, listen to this, honor everybody. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers, the church. Fear God and honor the emperor. What that means to me sometimes is honor the office even when you struggle to honor the officer. Paul writes in Romans 13, 
similar words, let everybody, listen to this, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. For the one authority, one in authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers don't bear the sword for no reason. They are servants of God, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of potential punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. And that word conscience that Paul uses over and again in 1 Timothy, it means innate discernment and self-judgment. Well, that sounds good, and it's right, But what do you do when people in positions of power behave in ways that are dishonorable? You must still pray. It was Henry Nouwen who said, prayer and action, however, can never be seen as contradictory or mutually exclusive. Prayer without action grows into powerless piety, and action without prayer degenerates into questionable manipulation. And of course, we never see that today, do we? There are two ways to influence people, inspiration and manipulation. What do you do when people in positions of power behave in ways that are dis? honorable. You still pray. Now, it's important, I think, to understand that in the first century, the Christian movement was a tiny Jewish sect, that there were many in the Greco-Roman culture in the first century who were actually paranoid that this movement might be subversive to the state might be revolutionary to Caesar, because unlike the vast majority of the culture, they were not polytheists. They didn't believe in many gods, but as Christians, we're monotheists. We believe in one God, one mediator, and so this tiny sect of Jewish messianic people refused to bow the knee to Caesar, or for that matter, to any earthly ruler. They would pray for the emperor, but they would not pray to the emperor. And that was a problem in first century. To confess Jesus as Lord means that there is no higher authority than him. Not Rome, not Caesar, not the state, not the Senate. And yet, says Paul, this confession will not actually weaken the nation, it will strengthen it. I'm reminded of Dr. King's discerning observation, the church must be reminded that it is neither the master nor the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and critic of the state and never its tool, otherwise we will become an irrelevant social club without spiritual or moral authority. 
So we pray for everyone, especially rulers and governing powers with whom we are often at odds. I remember what Tertullian, the early church father, said, the Christian is the enemy of no man, least of all the emperor. So why do we love, why do we pray for all? Because of our teaching, because of the message, because the one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, who was both human and divine, gave himself as a ransom, listen, for all. Not for some, not for a remnant, not for the righteous, not for the good, not for the Jews or the Gentiles, but for all. This appeal of the gospel is universal. Have any of you seen that State Farm commercial? If you've watched any NFL football, and we're still grieving about last Saturday, I know, but have you seen that State Farm commercial? Patrick uh, Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers are insured by State Farm because they think that get, they're getting a special rate that is exclusive to them because of who they are. And yet the State Farm rep reminds them, he is apparently a respecter of no person, but he says everyone gets the same great rate. And Mahomas and Rogers seem to be very offended by that, surprised. And whenever I see that commercial, I realize in the same way God is no respecter of persons, God doesn't play favorites, but the love of God is universal and personal. That we get the same great grace, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. God doesn't love one more than the other. In fact, there is absolutely nothing you can do today to make God love you more or less than God does right now. Verse 4, chapter 2 said, God desires that everyone be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's everybody. So the breadth and scope of the mission is for all because God loves all. And therefore, we are necessarily in the business of reconciliation, which means restored harmony. It reminds me of another mission statement that is ours. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation, so we are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Some of you remember the book, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, yes? Rick Warren made a statement that I think is especially apropos to this text and to this message. He said this, listen, emphasize reconciliation, not resolution. It is unrealistic to expect everybody to agree on everything. Reconciliation, however, focuses on the relationship while resolution focuses on the problem. When we focus on reconciliation, the problem loses significance and often becomes irrelevant. Now, to be confessional for a moment, and this is probably not true for any of you who are married, but every now and then my wife and I have a 
discussion, or what some folks call heated fellowship. And sometimes two days later, while we're having dinner, we can't even remember what the issue was because we try to focus on the relationship and not always just the resolution. And she can't be right about everything. <laughs> Let me give you an example and I'm finished. Samuel and Susanna Wesley were the parents of John Wesley. Uh, some of you know that they had 21 children together. Not all of them survived. In fact, somebody asked Samuel one day, how many children do you have? And he responded, somewhere between 17 and 19. They were both very strong in their personalities. Each had their definitive and distinctive political views and opinions, and they didn't always agree. And though they were devoted to each other, there were times of great disharmony and discord. At one point in their marriage, royal politics entered their home and caused a division, separation, literally a separation. Susanna was a strong supporter of the Stuart King James, who had been overthrown in 1688 and replaced by William, his Dutch son-in-law. In 1702, when they were having their family prayers in the house, Samuel prayed for King William, and Susanna refused to say, Amen. She was, as John would later describe her, inflexible, and Samuel was equally so. When she refused to say her amen to his prayer, Samuel looked at his wife and said, Suki, that's what he called Susanna, Suki, we must now part. For if we have two kings, we must have two beds. Susanna said she would apologize if she was wrong, but she felt to do so for expedience sake would be a lie and a greater sin. And so Samuel went into his room, packed his bags and walked out. He left. And by the way, if you didn't know, Samuel was an Anglican pastor. Five months later, King William died and Samuel came home. I think he was lucky that she let him in the door, but she did, and they reconciled. And the fruit of their reconciliation came forth a year later in the form of a baby boy named John Wesley. The effect of their reconciliation was a movement that would not only revive the institutions of England, but would later reawaken this country. And it occurs to me that if they had chosen politics over relationship, not a one of us would be sitting here today because there wouldn't be anywhere to sit but an open field. This house, 171 years old, this fellowship is built on the infrastructure of reconciliation, restored harmony, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And the Holy Spirit continues to move among us through stick and sound teaching 
and prayer. Prayer that actually becomes practice in the work of reconciliation for everyone, even me and even you, to the glory of God. Amen.